Rabbi Eliezer said in the Talmud, one who divorces his wife, even the very altar sheds tears because of him. I'm Rabbi Jordan Parr, and this is Torah for Christians. Welcome to Torah for Christians. I'm Rabbi Jordan Parr. Judaism has always recognized that divorce, while unfortunate, is a life cycle event. In this episode, we will discuss the reasons for divorce, who can initiate a divorce, and the process of divorce. Finally, we will look at some situations that may not be in accord with modern sensibilities. We begin our discussion of divorce with the biblical citation that underpins the entire discussion. We read in Deuteronomy chapter 24, verse 1, a man takes a wife and possesses her. She fails to please him because he finds something noxious about her. He writes her a bill of divorce, hands it to her, and sends her away from his house. Note the use of pronouns in this verse. A man takes a wife. He possesses her. She fails to please him. He finds something noxious about her. He writes her a bill of divorce. He hands it to her. He sends her away. The pattern is clear. A divorce occurs only when the husband initiates it. His wife cannot initiate a divorce except under extreme circumstances, such as abuse. This may seem very one-sided, as you might think that a woman conceivably can be held against her will. In the Talmud, we read this, A man who wishes to divorce his wife is not like a woman who seeks divorce from her husband. A woman is divorced in accordance with her will or against her will. A man cannot divorce his wife except of his own free will. So yes, there are limited circumstances when a woman can initiate a divorce, but the entire process is certainly male-dominated. While the wife has some economic protection, such as retaining the dowry in the ketubah, the Jewish marriage contract, divorce is still, as you see, a one-sided process. We will see, though, that there are some remedies but we must admit that divorce is an area of Jewish law where all but the most Orthodox are looking for ways to remedy the situation here in the United States, around the world, and especially in Israel. We will see why this is so important a bit later. But first, why would a man initiate a divorce? There are many possible reasons, but in essence, they boil down to these four. The first reason is refusal of sex, either for procreation or for enjoyment. If a man's wife refuses to bear children, she is violating the first commandment of the Torah, to be fruitful and multiply. Until recently, if a woman was not able to conceive, that was grounds for divorce. Her husband needed to find a different wife so that he could fulfill this commandment. Of course, having children is vital to the continuity of any family or any faith. Failure to conceive was always the wife's fault, by the way. Nobody envisioned that the husband might be infertile. 
We spoke in an earlier podcast that sex and marriage was also for pleasure. If a wife refused to please her husband sexually, he could sue for divorce. Judaism has long recognized the sexual urge. Sexual activity for pleasure within the confines of marriage is not a necessary evil. It is something to respect and regulate, even to celebrate. The second reason is obvious to all. Adultery. Should a man discover that his wife was involved in an adulterous affair, we would, I hope, all agree that he had every right to initiate divorce proceedings. He was, by the way, not required to do so. He just had grounds for divorce. In all these cases, nothing is mandatory. A husband does not have to divorce his wife for this or any other reason. Making divorce optional is one way that the rabbis attempted to preserve marriages. The third reason that a man could divorce his wife is if she refused to follow Jewish law, halakha. Judaism is very much concerned with boundaries and delineating the roles that a man and a woman play in a marriage. Traditionally, the husband was expected to provide for the family, father children, study Jewish texts, and pray regularly. His wife was expected to bear and raise children, keep the house clean, and maintain a traditional Jewish home, which meant that she needed to learn the laws of kashrut, the dietary laws, and the laws of Shabbat and the festivals. If her husband came home from work and found out that she was serving the children bacon cheeseburgers, that would be a gross violation of halakha and grounds for divorce. He could also divorce his wife if she converted to Christianity or any other faith. Finally, we come to the fourth and most perplexing reason that a man could divorce his wife. In the Talmud, it is called burning the soup. He could literally divorce his wife if she were a lousy cook. Among the impoverished Jews of Talmudic and medieval times, bad cooking might lead to starvation. But on a deeper level, this reflects on the previous reason for divorce. She was not keeping a kosher home. I mentioned that there are times when a woman can initiate a divorce. In theory, we can easily understand these. In practice, some of these reasons are quite hard to prove to a rabbinic court. The first reason is adultery. As in the case of the adulterous wife, if a woman discovers that her husband is unfaithful, she can petition the rabbinic court for a divorce. Similarly, we can understand the reasoning behind a woman asking for a divorce because of physical abuse. Before a bet din, a rabbinical court, a woman appearing with scars and bruises is compelling testimony. Emotional abuse is harder to prove, but it too is grounds for divorce. If her husband withholds sex, or if he is found to be sterile, she can sue for divorce. She has an equal obligation to fulfill the mitzvah, to be fruitful and multiply. If he cannot or refuses to fulfill this mitzvah, she can seek a husband who will. And should her husband come home eating a pork chop on Shabbat, she can sue for divorce because her husband refuses to follow Jewish law. She need only demonstrate his failure to observe halacha to the Bet-Din, the rabbinic court. In the Mishnah, the foundational text for the Talmud, 
we also read this. And these are the men whom we force to divorce their wives. A man smitten with boils, a man who has bad breath, that's gross bad breath, a gatherer of handfuls of excrement, a refiner of copper, and a tanner. In each of these cases, a wife can demand a divorce since her husband is unbearably odious. If she finds it impossible to live with her husband due to his smelly and disgusting job, she can divorce him. Let's now discuss the process of divorce. If a Jewish marriage is sealed with the ketubah, the Jewish legal wedding document that acts as a prenuptial agreement, a Jewish divorce undoes, undoes the ketubah by means of a document called a get, a document of divorce. The get ends the marriage through a legal process, which we will detail in just a minute. Even more important than the process is the intent of the get. The get stipulates that a wife keeps her dowry after the divorce is finalized. Jewish law protects the wife economically. She will leave the marriage with tangible property. This is also important if she remarries later. The dowry for a second marriage is usually much smaller. Her possessions serve as motivation for another man to marry her. Remember that in almost all cases, the husband initiates the get. He would come before a bet din, the rabbinical court composed of three male rabbis. The bet din questions the husband to determine the reasons for a divorce and to see if he is sincere. If the bet din grants the divorce, a sofer, a specially trained scribe, would then pen the get on parchment. The get specifies items such as the date, the location of the proceedings, and the terms of the divorce. It is a very formulaic and stylized document. The husband would then sign the get in the presence of witnesses. Once he signs, the get is folded and then cut. This cut is like a notary attesting to its validity, similar to the stamp of a county clerk. Finally, the get is placed into the open hands of his wife concluding the, merit, the divorce proceedings. The husband and wife are then free to remarry. To be clear, the husband and wife do not have to be in the same room or even in the same city for the divorce to be finalized. If his soon-to-be ex-wife is not present, a shaliach, a designated messenger, can deliver the get in the presence of witnesses who can then attest to its delivery. As I mentioned earlier, this is all very one-sided. The husband can initiate a divorce at almost any time. But does his wife have any recourse? There are a few options here, even though none of them help a woman to initiate a divorce. One option is a separate prenuptial agreement, which includes a property agreement. This is added to the ketubah. This Jewish prenup strengthens her position vis-a-vis -vis any property settlement in the case of divorce. Another example is taken from American civil law. In 1985, the state of New York passed what is known as the Get Law. It stipulated that a husband must furnish his wife with the Get should two Jews divorce. Ever since that law was passed, I have encouraged women facing a divorce 
to have their lawyer insist on a similar clause for their civil divorce decrees. Then, should there be a divorce, her husband must provide her with a get. The state is then obligated to enforce its proper execution. Why is this so important? Well, we'll find out after our break. I'm Rabbi Jordan Parr, and this is Torah for Christians. Welcome back to Torah for Christians. I'm Rabbi Jordan Parr. Before we return to our discussion of the Jewish view of divorce, I want to thank you for listening to this podcast. Please remember to review and rate this episode on Apple, Spotify, or whatever service you are using. Also, please go back and listen to previous episodes if you have not done so already. We have covered a lot of material so far, and I look forward to what is to come. So why is the get so important, especially for women? Let me start with a story. In October 2021, the last Jewish man in Afghanistan left for Israel. While I may be happy that he went to Israel after all these years, I wondered why he stayed in Afghanistan for so long. The reason astounded me. He stayed in Afghanistan because he refused to give his wife, who lived in Israel, a get. He finally decided, after many years, to give in and grant her a divorce. And so he left for Israel. In other words, even if a husband and wife separate, even if they live in different countries, the husband does not have to give her a get. A bet din can compel him to write one, even to the point of fines or imprisonment. But without an enforcement mechanism, the bet din is powerless to compel the husband to grant a get. Hence, by staying in Afghanistan, this Jewish man evaded an Israeli bet din, which is the only place in the entire world where the rabbinical court has enforcement powers. To put it another way, if the ex-husband wishes to remarry, he can write a get at any time prior to his remarriage and send it to his ex-wife. If the ex-wife wishes to remarry and did not receive a get at the time of the civil divorce, she must seek out and convince her ex-husband to grant her a get. One can only imagine the problems that this might cause. If he refuses, most rabbis will not sanctify her second marriage, even if the state recognizes it. Why is this so important? In halakha, if a Jew previously married to another Jew remarries a different Jew without obtaining a get beforehand, that second marriage is considered an adulterous relationship. Even more important, should that couple subsequently have children, those children are considered mamzers. A mamzer is a child born of an adulterous relationship when a man or woman has a child without previously obtaining a get. A mamzer is not, repeat not, a child born without the benefit of marriage. If a Jewish man and a Jewish woman, both of whom have never been married before, have a child together, that child is not a mamzer. The mamzer status applies to a child born of either divorced parent. This is the reason why Jewish men often give their ex-wives a divorce 
They do not want any subsequent children to be considered as mamzerim, the plural of mamzer. According to halakha, a mamzer cannot marry another Jew except for another mamzer. Their children can marry any other Jew, but according to biblical and rabbinic law, a mamzer is cut off from the Jewish community. Having said all this, what happens if a woman wants to remarry another Jew and her ex-husband refuses to grant her a get? According to halakha, she is forbidden to remarry. This was the situation with the ex-wife of the Afghani Jew. By refusing to grant his wife a get, she could not remarry. Currently, the only way around this problem, aside from being imprisoned in an Israeli jail, and even then not required to grant a get, is the death of the husband. Therefore, we are trying to find halachic solutions to this intractable problem. The final situation to discuss is the aguna. An aguna, literally a chained woman, is in reality an abandoned wife. The two primary reasons are desertion and captivity. If a husband disappears or is captured in war, we do not know whether he is alive or dead. His wife, though, cannot remarry until it is determined that he is dead. In the case of an aguna, however, it is possible for a woman to come before a bet din after a significant amount of time has passed and petition the court to declare her husband dead, allowing her to remarry. We should take a moment to talk about interfaith and same-sex marriage. According to halakha, an interfaith marriage is not recognized as a valid marriage. Since a couple in an interfaith marriage cannot receive a halachic ketubah, they do not need a halachic get. Children born to such a couple follow the religion of their mother. They are not mamzers. In liberal Jewish traditions, which recognize the validity of same-sex marriages, there is a ketubah. Therefore, many rabbis will require a get. Of course, in the Orthodox tradition, these marriages are not valid either, and the get is of a more liberal style. I want to thank you for listening to Torah for Christians. Please remember to rate and review this and previous episodes on Apple, Spotify, or other streaming services. You can also like us on Facebook. Next week, we will discuss conversion in the Jewish tradition. Stay tuned. Have a wonderful week, and remember, Behold, how good and how pleasant it is for us to dwell together as one. Till we meet again, I'm Rabbi Jordan Parr, and this is Torah for Christians. Mm-hmm.